0: I want to ask, what is the purpose of life? You go to school, high school, then perhaps you go to college or university, then you want to get a job, you want a career, and hopefully, or maybe a lot of us want to get married, want to have a family. Then you want to see your kids grow up. And then you want to see your kids go through the same cycle that you went through, to go to school, to go to college, university, get a job, get a career, get married, raise a family, and they see their kids grow up. It's the same cycle, same cycle, same cycle. But what is the purpose of all of that? What are we ultimately living for? So look with me in today's passage. In Luke chapter 3, verses 15 to 20. And I'm going to be reading from the ESV. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, He preached good news to the people. But Herod, the treacherous, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So let's pray once again this morning. God, I pray that right now that you would grip us by the power of your word because we know that your word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, piercing between soul and spirit and dividing between joint and marrow and judging and exposing all the thoughts of our hearts. God, today, we need to hear your voice. We need to recognize our need for a Savior. We need to run to you in humility, and I pray, God, that you would meet us in our brokenness, fill us, Lord, with your Spirit, and that we would once again see how glorious our Savior is, and we would live for the glory of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So the title of today's message is Live for the Glory of Christ. Live for the glory of Christ, and we're continuing in our Advent series, the Advent of Christ, as we're leading up to Christmas, and we're reminded week after week that Christmas is all about Christ. In the midst and the busyness of Christmas shopping and thinking about friends and family and scheduling dinners together, Christmas is all about Christ. But not only Christmas, all of life is about the glory of Christ. So, how do we live for the glory of Christ? And we're going to see in today's passage three different ways that we can live for the glory of Christ. This list is not exhaustive, but from this passage, we're going to see three different ways that we can live for the glory of Christ. The first way that we can live for the glory of Christ, recognize the centrality of Christ. Recognize the centrality of Christ. So look with me at verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. Remember the Jews at that time, 2,000 years ago. They were waiting for the Christ, the Messiah. Christ and Messiah means the same thing. The anointed one. The anointed Davidic king who comes from the line of David, and who will deliver Israel from all of her enemies. In, in that case, Rome, the Roman Empire. And so they're waiting for this deliverer, this Messiah. And they're thinking, maybe it's John the Baptist. You know, John the Baptist was this fiery character. He lived in the wilderness, preaching repentance. All these Jewish people start flocking to John the Baptist to be baptized in a baptism of repentance to prepare the way of the Lord. But they're thinking, wow, this guy's an amazing, powerful prophet. Maybe he is the Christ. Maybe he's the Messiah. But John the Baptist, he recognized the centrality of Christ. He immediately takes the focus off of himself. He says, don't look at me. Don't focus on me. Look to Jesus Christ. And he points everyone to Jesus he says, I'm not the focus of God's plan. Life does not revolve around me. God does not revolve around me. Everything revolves around Christ. Christ is the focus. Christ is the center of God's plan. So look at what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. Paul writes, for by him, him referring to Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. You see, you were created through Jesus for Jesus. Your job was created through Jesus for Jesus. Your marriage was created through Jesus for Jesus. Your family was created through Jesus for Jesus. Your children were created through Jesus for Jesus. This whole world was created through Jesus for Jesus. Everything revolves around Christ. And until we grasp this truth that we exist solely for Jesus Christ, solely for His glory, you will never understand your true purpose in life. And this is something that plagues this generation. We have no sense of purpose. We're constantly distracted. And we want to, subconsciously, Distract ourselves more and more because we don't want to be sitting alone thinking about life. Why am I really here? What am I doing with my life? When I look back for the past 20 years, am I where I want to be? And when I look forward to the next 20 years, will I be where I want to be? But we just distract ourselves. More social media. More Netflix. We don't want to think about greater things, the purpose of life. But John the Baptist, he grasped this truth that life revolves around Christ and he pointed others to Jesus Christ. Look at what he says in verse 16. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you. With the Holy Spirit and fire. John readily admits that Jesus is mightier than I. John the Baptist, he was a prophet. Jesus says he was the greatest prophet, the greatest man who ever lived up until that time. But Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. He is fully God and fully man. There's no comparison. Now, it was a slave's duty to wash people's feet whenever they entered into someone's house. But unstrapping the sandal and to remove the thong from between someone's toes after they walked in the dirt, dirt roads all day, it was the least enjoyable part of washing someone's feet. No slave enjoyed doing that. That's where all the dirt and all the sweat built up. And John is saying, I'm not even worthy to unstrap Jesus' sandals. Even taking off the strap and the thong from between his toes, where all of his dirt and sweat has been building up, that's too noble a task for me. I'm not worthy enough to do that. He is greater than me. Is this the posture that you have whenever you think about Jesus? He's just so much greater. Jesus must increase. I must decrease. He must become greater. I must become less. Today in our society, it's all about self-promotion. Social media is all about promoting yourself. But as Christians, we're called towards Christ promotion. It's all about Jesus. I want to point everyone to Jesus. Stop looking at me. I'm not important. Look to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, what are you living for? What is the purpose of your life? Do you see all of life to be lived for the glory of Christ? Or is all of life about me, my glory, my wants, my needs? John then says, I baptize you with water, but Jesus will come and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Maybe you've heard this passage growing up, especially if you've come from a Pentecostal or charismatic background. Very, very famous verse. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. What does this mean? It means that Jesus... Is the long awaited Messiah, and Jesus is the one who ushers in the last days. It's a fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament. For example, look at Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 31. God says, This is in the Old Testament, and afterward I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. According to the Old Testament prophets, not just this prophecy in Joel, they believed that in the last days, they don't know when it's going to come, but in the last days, four things will happen all at once. The coming of the Messiah, the outpouring of the Spirit on all of God's people, The restoration of all of God's people, gathering them from all these foreign oppressing nations. And lastly, the final day of judgment on all of God's enemies. The last days, the eschaton, the end times, all of these things will happen. This is their final hope, their ultimate hope. But what the Old Testament prophets didn't realize is that the last days would take place in two parts. And that's what we see in the New Testament. The end times comes in two parts. The two advents of Christ. The first advent of Christ, Jesus came 2,000 years ago, and he baptized with the Holy Spirit. After he's raised from the dead, he ascends into heaven, he pours out his Spirit on his disciples. Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. The 120 disciples gathered in Mark's upper room as they're praying, as they're waiting for the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes, clothes them with with power like tongues of fire and they start praising God in all of these different languages and then right after Peter preaches a sermon quoting from Joel chapter 2 and 3,000 people are saved and baptized in one day. That was the baptism of the Spirit. And even right now, whenever someone comes to faith in Christ, they are baptized with the Holy Spirit. They are regenerated and born again, made new in Christ. But the second advent of Christ, we don't know when that's going to be. When Jesus returns, when he comes again, Jesus will baptize with fire. and Fire meaning judgment. It's going to be judgment day. Where God will punish all of His enemies. Now, how did I come to that interpretation? Maybe you grew up hearing and learning that the baptism of the Holy Spirit in fire is just passion. I need fire, fire fall down. We don't want to pray fire fall down. It means judgment. It means God's wrath. How do I know that? Look at the next verse. Luke three seventeen. John continues, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So we don't live in an agricultural society anymore, so these terms are probably not familiar to us. So here's an image of a winnowing fork. Looks like a pitchfork made of wood. This is what you would use to gather up bundles of wheat and you would gather the bundles of wheat in the next slide we see a threshing floor. You would cover the threshing floor a very hard surface maybe it's made of rock or stone and you would cover the entire threshing floor with a layer of wheat. Then after that you would bring in oxen to trample on the wheat all over this threshing floor, to break apart the wheat from the chaff, the chaff being the inedible, hard outer layer surface of the wheat. So you want to separate the grain from the chaff. And then after it's separated, the next slide we see, you use that winnowing fork, you grab the bundles of wheat that has been broken apart, you throw it into the air, and the wind will blow away the chaff. And then you can gather the wheat that you have in the winnowing fork, collect it into a barn, and you will be able to use that for food. But the remaining chaff that's on the threshing floor, the quickest way to get rid of it was to light it on fire. Just light that thing on fire and all of the chaff will be burnt up right away. This is imagery of the final day of judgment. John says this. Jesus later says this. When the Son of Man comes and when he returns, Jesus will separate the wheat from the chaff. Those who trusted and believed and followed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they will be gathered into the kingdom of God. They will feast with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth, experiencing eternal joy and peace and fellowship with God. But those who reject Christ... Or don't want to have anything to do with Christ. Want to be masters of their own lives. They are the chaff. They will be burned with unquenchable fire in the lake of fire, which is hell. Now, no one wants to talk about hell. And no one wants to talk about their non-Christian, to their non-Christian friends and family members, about hell. But the Bible talks about hell. In fact, Jesus talked about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. And so we can't just simply ignore parts of the Bible that we don't like. Just pretend like it's not there. Just focus on the passages that encourage us. But we have to recognize that Jesus really is the center of all things. He is the Savior of the world, but He's also the final judge who will separate the wheat from the chaff. That brings us to the second point of how do I live for the glory of Christ? Preach the good news of Christ. Look at verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. So John the Baptist, what did he just talk about? He was preaching to the people that this chaff is going to be burned with unquenchable fire. And the narrator, the gospel writer, Luke, who's writing this story, Luke describes that preaching as good news. How is that good news? The chaff is going to be burned with unquenchable fire. Well, we can't get to the good news, and we can't fully understand how good the good news is, until we first hear what the bad news is. And the bad news is that all of us are sinners. We fall short of the glory of God. We have rebelled against our God and Creator, and all of us deserve to burn with unquenchable fire. But the good news is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As it says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, if you are a Bible-believing Christian, if you are a member of our church, and you truly believe that hell is real, and that apart from Christ, all people are headed towards eternal hell, But those who believe in Jesus, those who turn to Christ in faith, will not perish, but have everlasting life. If if this is what you truly profess and believe in your heart, how can we not proclaim the good news to all people, to our non-Christian friends and family members? It's the most loving thing that we can do, if this is true. Who is God calling you to share the good news with this Christmas? Just think about your your dinners that you have lined up, or maybe you don't have a dinner schedule for Christmas. Who can you intentionally pray for in the next two weeks? Reach out to and say, hey, let's meet up. Let's have dinner together. And then bring up the topic of Christianity, of faith, of spirituality, of what is the purpose in life, and share with them the hope that you have in Christ because apart from the good news, they are headed towards eternal damnation. So one of the ways that we can live for the glory of Christ is to share the gospel with unbelievers this Christmas. Preach the good news of Christ. And lastly, the third way that we can live for the glory of Christ, be willing to suffer for Christ. Probably one of the fears that we have in preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel to our non-Christian friends and family members is we're scared. We're scared of the backlash. We're scared of being rejected. We're scared of being mocked and isolated, ostracized. But that comes with being a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. We have to be willing to suffer for Him. Look at verses 19 to 20. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him, by John the Baptist, for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Herod was the ruler of Galilee, and he's married, and he sets his eyes on his brother's wife. So he divorces his wife, he seduces his brother's wife, convinces her to divorce his brother so that they could be together. And also, his brother's wife happens to be his niece. So this goes totally against the Mosaic law. And John the Baptist, he has this righteous anger, and he rebukes Herod, the ruler of Galilee, saying, this is not right in the eyes of the Lord. What you're doing is evil. What happens to John? He's imprisoned, and later on in the story, John is beheaded. Most of us don't picture our lives ending up that way. If I follow Jesus, I would hope to have a happy and blessed family, a good, comfortable job that I like, safety and comfort for the rest of my life. Jesus is all about peace. We think about the Bible characters in the Old Testament. Maybe your parents told you when you are younger, I pray that you'll be like Joseph, prime minister. I pray that you'll be like Daniel, the governor. I pray that you'll be like David, the king. I bet none of our parents said, I pray that you'll be like John the Baptist, standing up for what's right, being imprisoned and being beheaded. So some of you might be thinking, Come on, John. Why did you have to open your big mouth? No one told you you had to talk to Herod and say what you're doing is evil. Just keep those thoughts to yourself or write a blog post or just talk about it amongst your friends and family. Why did you have to confront him? Didn't you know that you'd end up in prison? If only you had kept your faith private then you wouldn't have gotten yourself into trouble. We find ourselves in a similar situation today. where We think to ourselves, if I open my mouth and talk about my faith in public, I can lose my job, I can lose my friends, I can lose my reputation. So I need to avoid trouble at all costs. By keeping my faith private. Now I'm not saying that we all have to be like John the Baptist. All of us have to have a fiery personality and go confront Justin Trudeau. Go confront every politician. Go confront every leader in our city and nation. I'm not saying that we have to actively seek out persecution. But the question we need to ask ourselves is, am I even willing to suffer for Christ. Look at what Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verses 22 to 24. Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders and they're urging him, don't go to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit is telling us what's going to happen. You're going to get in prison there. And Paul says, and now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. In all honesty, what do you value more? Christ and his gospel were comfort and safety. It's all a matter of what are you willing to risk. Paul's willing to risk his comfort and safety. I know prison and hardships are awaiting me. That's why I'm going to Jerusalem. They need to hear the gospel too. Most of us, I think would say we value comfort and safety more. And that is why we don't want to risk anything. We don't want any sort of trouble or hardships in our lives. If you value Christ and his gospel more than comfort and safety, you will be willing to suffer for Christ. And this is a real honest question that we have to wrestle with in our own hearts. And when you are willing to suffer for Jesus, if you are willing to suffer for Jesus, that willingness magnifies the worth of Christ to all those around you. And that brings glory to Jesus. When people around you, Christians or non-Christians, maybe even your parents and your family who are Christians, they see your life and they say, why are you doing that? Why are you risking your life? Why are you risking your job? Just keep quiet. Don't do that. And when they see that I'm doing this because of Jesus and for his glory and for his gospel, they will see, wow, you value Jesus that much? You treasure Jesus that much? You see him as as more valuable than your own comfort and safety and the future and the protection of your family? Jesus must be really, really important to you. He must be really great. And this... Makes the gospel more attractive. It makes people intrigued. Why are you willing to suffer for Jesus? So, to recap, three ways that we can live for the glory of Christ. The first is recognize the centrality of Christ, In verses 15 to 17. Preach the good news of Christ, In verse 18. And be willing to suffer for Christ, In verse 19. To 20. Now, interestingly, from this point on in the narrative of the Gospel of Luke, the author Luke, he takes the focus off of John the Baptist and on to Jesus. The rest of the chapters, it's not about John the Baptist anymore. It's all about Jesus. And this is the same call for all of us today. To have a turning point in your life. Maybe you've already been a professing Christian, but to have a turning point in your life where the focus of your story is no longer about you. It's all about Jesus. It's not about what I want anymore, what I need, my glory, my ambitions. No, I just want Jesus to be glorified. Live for the glory of Christ. Only then will you be able to fulfill The true purpose of why you were created. You were created by Jesus. You were created through Jesus. And you were created for Jesus.